0: You're listening to the Montreal Institute for Genocide and Human Rights Studies interview with Parampreet Singh from Human Rights Watch.
1: Today I'm very happy to welcome Parampreet Singh. Uh, She works at Human Rights Watch and what we're going to discuss today Is the situation and persecution of the Rohingya in Myanmar? Thank you, Pam, for um, being here today. Thanks so much for having me. First, I would like to know um, if you could if you could give a small a small summary of uh, why the Rohingya are being persecuted and when things got worse compared to what it was, for example, 20 or 30 years ago.
0: Sure. Well, it's important to acknowledge that the Rohingya have been persecuted in Myanmar for years. Um, It peaked in 2017, um, but it's, you know, it started long before and continues to this day. And essentially, uh, at the root of this campaign against the Rohingya is this belief uh, by Myanmar's government, including the military, that the Rohingya don't belong in Myanmar and that they um, should go elsewhere. And in essence, that's what sparked, um, you know, decades of discriminatory policies, which started with stripping them of their citizenship in the 80s, and you know took a, an even more sinister turn in 2012 with the outbreak of violence, and as I said, it peaked in 2017, and the result of the Myanmar military's uh, brutal campaign against them. In essence, it resulted in uh, more than 740,000 Rohingya being pushed out of the country into Bangladesh.
1: Yes, uh, and and the surprise to me is, can you tell me what happened in November 2019 and what the small country of Gambia did to actually bring justice?
0: Sure. I think to, to really make sense of that groundbreaking development, it helps to take a step back and to consider what the UN did in response to this crisis um, from 2017. In essence, there was a UN investigation um, and that investigation resulted in a pretty comprehensive and itself a groundbreaking report which found that Myanmar's military recommended that Myanmar's military senior officials in the military should be investigated for crimes against humanity, war crimes and genocide and genocide in particular for its acts towards the Rohingya Muslim group. And you know this report landed with a lot of fanfare but no one really knew what to do with it because you know, the different accountability avenues, I think we might get to that a little bit later, but they're not obvious because Myanmar isn't a party to, let's say, the, the International Criminal Courts Treaty. So that's not an automatic um, path to, for victims and survivors to get justice. But what had been previously overlooked, um, and this brings us to the story, the part of the story where Gambia plays a pretty big role. Um, Gambia, the sm- it's the smallest country in Africa on the African continent decided to bring a case before the International Court of Justice alleging that Myanmar had violated and was continuing to violate the Genocide Convention to which Myanmar is a party. Mm-hmm.
1: Um, could you perhaps explain the difference as well because between the ICJ um, and then the International Criminal Court?
0: Of course. So the International Criminal Court is the court where victims and survivors can see justice against individual perpetrators. Um, So that's really about criminal responsibility for for those perpetrators seeing them brought to justice. Um, The International Court of Justice litigates disputes between countries. So here in the context of the Gambia action, Gambia has brought a case before the International Court of Justice saying that Myanmar has violated its state obligations not to commit genocide um, under the genocide convention.
1: And so, how is trying, well, how is Gambia trying to, to make this case? And what, what kind of evidence do they, do, they, do they have considering that Myanmar um, is not part of the Rome Statute, for example?
0: So, it, it's a good question, um, because, you know, in a situation like Myanmar, where they've closed their doors to any kind of external scrutiny, um, external, you know, probing or investigation, Requires some creativity. Um, in this case, Gambia has relied pretty heavily on the UN report that I mentioned earlier, um, which was both, you know, incredibly comprehensive in breadth and very detailed in its findings. So it's a very, you know, it's a it's a very strong report, um, and it's you know draws a lot of the information in it from interviews with the survivors in Bangladesh. As I mentioned, there's more than seven hundred and forty thousand of them. In fact, there's mm-hmm. a million cumulants. Um, but they've also had access to other sources, for instance, satellite imagery. Satellite imagery that we, as Human Rights Watch, have also collected to illustrate the pattern of destruction by um, Myanmar mm. in Rakhine State, where most of the Rohingya lived. Okay. And since since November two thousand and
1: nineteen, how has the court moved forward? How has, how is the case going? Because we everything. We're hearing a lot about the pandemic these days. But not so much about what's going on with the Rohingya.
0: That's a great question. Um, one thing I do want to say is, so I was in The Hague when Gambia filed. You know, we got a heads up that they were going to file their case. We knew that it was coming. Um, so I was in The Hague when it happened. Then I was in The Hague a month later when the court had what are called provisional measures hearings. Mm-hmm. For those who aren't familiar, basically under the International Court of Justice's statute, they can order injunctive relief. So basically um, it's an order directed to the countries involved in this dispute to basically stop what they're doing so that they don't make the underlying dispute worse. So the hearings took place in December and it really, the the hearings themselves grabbed a lot of headlines because um, the civilian leader Aung San Suu Kyi um, attended and defended Myanmar's military in court mm-hmm. um, in a moment when no one was even sure that Gambia or Myanmar would respond. Not only did they respond, they responded and showed up at, you know, the highest level. And uh, so that hearing took place in December, and then one, a little over a month later, um, on January 23rd, the court unanimously decided, one, that the Rohingya are a protected group, Two, that they remained at risk of genocide mm-hmm. Myanmar not to commit genocide um, to prevent genocide and to preserve evidence relating to the dispute. And what was uh, Myanmar's defense? I mean, the defense is what it always is, that they're misunderstood, that they're mm-hmm. t- that, you know, it's it was very much reflective of, I think, the narrative within the country, which is the international community is putting a lot of pressure on us. They don't understand the pressure that we are under. Um, but what was illuminating, I think, about um, the hearings themselves and the fact that uh, State Council Aung San Suu Kyi showed up, yeah. up until that moment, there was still something of a division between, or the perception of a division between the military, which had ruled Burma for decades yeah. prior, um, and the civilian government, um, that there was somehow daylight between the two and that You'll hope that the civilian government would come and save the country and, and deliver on the democracy that it's long promised. But the fact that Aung San came to court and defended the military's murderous campaign, I think, really put that fiction to rest.
1: Yes, yeah, she has a, a special Canadian citizenship that I think she's lost by now. Um, she has, yes. And has Myanmar actually done anything to? End the persecution, or put some kind of end to the violence, or, or is the situation still as bad for the Rohingya Especially in 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 um in some parts of the country, we have a lot of conflicts, and all of them still residing in the camps. Has anything been done by the government to improve the situation?
0: So our research says no. <laughs> yeah. Um, it, it hasn't. You know, I think you know to. To understand what Myanmar is not doing, it helps to unpack what it actually means to prevent genocide under the circumstances. Mm. Um, and, you know, the court made it pretty clear in their provisional measures order that up until that moment, I mean, that was the justification for them putting out the order in the first place, that Myanmar, what it had done so far wasn't satisfactory. And, you know, if you look at the, the sort of, um, risk factors of genocide in the country now, it's it's not just the threat of violence. I mean that's always always especially given that there is an ongoing conflict in the kind state. But it's you know looking at the discriminatory framework that targets Rohingya, that has made their access to education, to livelihoods, to healthcare, you know, it's threatening their very lives in and their way of life in the country, um, those all could be indicators of genocide. And if you start looking at those more practical um elements of the discriminatory policies, you know, it's not hard to come up with a to-do list, a meaningful to-do list that could, that Myanmar could put in place, it could ease restrictions on humanitarian access, it could dismantle the discriminatory framework that makes access to healthcare and education impossible. Um, you know, it could uh, stop hate speech. Um, you know, there's, there's a laundry list of things they could do, but, you know, aside from passing a few Bollocked uh, directives at the presidential level. You know, in practice, nothing has changed. If anything, with the pandemic, things have gotten worse. And um, it's also the point of these
1: policies to just drive them out, to drive the Rohingya out, basically, instead of you know the, killing them to actually to push them out of the country.
0: Yes, I mean that that ha- and that has been a policy for. I mean that was even before two thousand and seventeen. Um, and in fact, you know, it sort of underpins their entire approach because in their view, the Rohingya don't belong in Myanmar. Um, you know, they refer to them uh, as Bengalis and that mm-hmm. they, they need to be pushed out. So yeah. that's been a consistent theme.
1: So we know we know that hate speech obviously played a big role in the um, genocide, especially hate speech on social media platforms, especially Facebook. Facebook um, that is kind of so, platform of communication and information almost in, in Myanmar. And Facebook I mean in the UN factoring finding mission that was made pretty clear how much Facebook contributed to um, the violence. But Facebook last week announced that they didn't really want to collaborate with the court and they didn't want to provide any kind of evidence. What what do you think about this? And what what can we push Facebook to um you know Facebook is so you know, it doesn't really respect privacy. So Why in this case suddenly I mean, they're like we don't want to provide any evidence or we don't provide any information to the court?
0: Well I think it's important to distinguish the kind of information that um, the Gambia and also um, there's a another criminal mechanism or quasi-criminal mechanism that was established by the UN in 2019 and basically its job is to collect and preserve evidence that could one day be used for Criminal accountability, um, as, as we discussed before, um, the kind of information we're talking about—it's not even private messages. We're talking mm-hmm. about primarily public posts that were evidence of hate speech, you know, evidence of incitement to violence that the Facebook has taken down. And you know, what I thought was interesting about Facebook's response to a refusal to Gambia—it seemed to suggest that, you know. It's not that they're they're not willing to cooperate. It's their hands are tied. They don't want to violate the Store Communications Act. Um, and you know, in other areas, has you know cited its ongoing. You know, it's it's ref- referred to its cooperation with the mechanism I mentioned. It's called the International Independent Mechanism for Myanmar. Mm. Um, but what was interesting is that just yesterday or was today. The head of that mechanism has said, look, we have been in conversation with Facebook for a year and they have revealed nothing. Mm -hmm. I mean, the question that you're asking, I think, is better directed to Facebook. Why aren't they um, sharing the information? If they say that they're committed to accountability and, and righting past wrongs, then why wouldn't they share this once public information with bodies that are in a position to do something with it?
1: Yeah, believe me, my, my list of questions to Mark Zuckerberg is usually getting <laughs> longer know. by the day these days. No. Um, but what other um, challenges does the court face right now in terms of both of evidence, but also in terms of funding, probably?
0: Um, which court are you um, yeah. uh, The uh, ICJ. Uh, well, the ICJ case, because it's the court itself is a UN organ um, and because it's Gambia, that's brought the case and Myanmar's responding. I mean, both of those individual states have to foot their respective costs. Um, With respect to the UN mechanism that I mentioned, the WM that was established back in 2018, um, that's funded out of the the UN budget, the regular UN budget. That's not to say that its budget is a cakewalk guaranteed because as you can imagine i mean you have to just take one look at the sort of bleak geopolitical landscape at the un to to guess at which states would or which countries would rather do away with these accountability mm-hmm. mechanisms so that's an ongoing battle um and it's it's really up to you know the the un member states committed to accountability to keep putting their money where their mouth is and funding these initiatives
1: mm-hmm. and i say, th- i think you know i an organization you continue to um look at the situation now and we're facing a global pandemic and we have a lot of them that in idp camps and refugee camps and uh, where it's impossible to physically distance where they have barely access to sanitation and health care
0: what is the situation of them for them now in these camps so, uh, you know, we actually did some research that we put out a couple of months ago on the situation of the Rohingya that are still stuck in camps or basically open air detention in Rakhine state. Mm-hmm. And, you know, specifically the research that we've done revealed that, you know, if it was bad before, the restrictions on the Rohingya, if they were bad before, they're even worse now in terms of, you know, how they're extorted at, you know, military and security checkpoints. Um, you know, They have limited access to healthcare before. It's even worse now, there's no testing capacity. And, you know, if, you know, someone does test positive or if there is an outbreak, um, you know, the the ability of the healthcare system within Rakhine State, which is one of the most, it's so poorly funded anyway, um, but, you know, in the face of a, a pandemic, you can only really imagine the worst. And are neighboring countries doing
1: anything to put more pressure on the um, government to, to act? I, mean, I believe, I don't think the US is really doing anything because it's, it's not really there really on the world right now. Um, I know Canada has done a
0: little bit, but are neighboring countries doing anything to improve the situation? Now? Well, Canada is definitely on our list to do more. <laughs> um, but You know, I think that there are a couple of different platforms. So first, let's start with state, what states could be saying to Myanmar directly in their bilateral relations. Um, You know, we have a unanimous provisional measures order from a UN court. They need to be asking the question, what are you doing to implement it beyond these superficial directives? Like, show me statistics about humanitarian access, Show show me the, you know, information or data about how hospitals are being utilized. They need to be asking the right, not just questions, but the right questions to really push Myanmar on its implementation. But, you know, there are also various UN4, there's the UN General Assembly, there's the UN Human Rights Council, there's the UN Security Council. Now, I will say that at both the Human Rights Council and the General Assembly, there's a good resolution. So basically it's ostensibly a piece of paper, but it's really a, a piece of paper agreed upon by most states expressing concern about the situation in Myanmar. Mm -hmm. It had really good resolutions out of both of those bodies, and here's why they're important. Yes, they're a piece of paper. They're important political statements, but they're also read by the ICJ's judges. That was the basis that the judges used, or part of Mm -hmm. the basis, when they decided that Myanmar wasn't doing enough. So those pieces of paper really matter. They mean something. Mm -hmm. The open question is the Security Council. The Security Council has been... You know, it's the membership, it's 15 members, really it's five permanent members, remain bitterly divided, which you know has yielded a number of casualties, of which Myanmar is but one. Um, but nonetheless, I think that there is still more scope for them for those united on the council. Um, and I think we have the numbers, um, but those united on the council to express their concern in a formal way, that is through a formal session of the Security Council, to put more pressure on Myanmar to do more, especially with the upcoming elections.
1: But that is obviously very unlikely to include China, considering China is persecuting the Uyghurs in their own country. So it's it's not, I I, I don't think anything might be blocked by China, Russia, for example.
0: And for the most part, it's it's not just formal blocking, but it's self-censorship that I think countries absorb um, because they don't want to annoy China. But the reality is, is that if you want to have a formal session on a particular area or country of concern, you only need nine votes. And China, there's no veto. China can't block it. So while China can't quash any outcome, or you need China's buy in for any kind of outcome, you don't need their buy in. Mm-hmm. So, as I said, like a formal discussion and formal engagement by the council to express concern.
1: Okay. And um, what is Human Rights Watch doing for the Ringa? you know, what, what's your plan for, for the next few months, for example, um, in terms of perhaps providing more evidence or doing more um, reports?
0: So the work that we do um, on Myanmar is pretty extensive and it doesn't, it's not only in relation to the conditions um, the ranger are facing, although that's a of the work that we do. Um, so I would say, you know, moving forward beyond, you know, the terrible human rights and humanitarian situation in the country, we're also looking at, the Closing Space for Freedom of Expression. Uh, I have a colleague who's done a really excellent work to explain why, you know, Myanmar, or how Myanmar is using these really um, uh, problematic laws to uh, quell any kind of constructive engagement by civil society, by journalists, yeah. and a space for them to work, frankly. Um, you know, Myanmar is still facing an internet blackout. Um, yeah. That's a problem, because if people don't have access to information, they can't you know, how are they going to get um, whatever little humanitarian aid is available? Mm-hmm. They're, they're cut off from the information about it. They're cut off from information, you know, in light of, in relation to the ongoing conflict. There is a conflict that is between yeah. the Arkan army and uh, Myanmar's military in the kind state, um, which has made uh, the situation for civilians even more perilous. The internet blackout makes it worse. So, you know, just to give you a, a taste of the kinds of issues that we look at, you know, we're really trying to figure out ways, make recommendations aimed at realizing the promise of a democratic transition in a very, on a very bleak landscape where it seems increasingly impossible. Mm-hmm.
1: And do, do you think we placed too much hope in the and in, in Myanmar when the transition first happened?
0: Is a lot of us to be i mean look i think it's a good lesson in you know not putting all of your expectations on the shoulder of one shoulders of one person um and you know looking at you know taking a clear-eyed view of the institutional weaknesses or rather what needs to what institutions need to be strengthened to deliver on the promise of democracy because it's never even with the most well-intentioned person it's it's not reasonable to expect them to deliver. And in this situation where, you know, we've seen felt nothing but profound disappointment, it's all the more urgent to look to other avenues to, to again, realize on the promise and, and hope for democracy.
1: All right, well, thank you so much for being part of this discussion today. We will share the work that you've done with Human Rights Watch um, widely and help people keep an eye on the situation because obviously now a lot of people focus on the pandemic and a little bit more in one night. So thank you very much for being here today.
0: Thanks so much for having me.